Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Several times on this show, we've mentioned the pre-web Silicon Valley frenzy for pen computing, which happened in the early 1990s. It's a part of internet history that even I only have a vague knowledge of. So I was super excited in this episode to speak with Matt Kirsch. Matt was heavily involved in this technology and is kind enough to give us an in-depth look at that mini bubble and explain how it happened and how it paved the way in a roundabout way for the modern handheld devices we're all familiar with today. Matt was also heavily involved in several Microsoft initiatives in the 1990s, including the pioneering local site Sidewalk, as well as the MSN.com portal at the height of the portal era. Please enjoy this excellent conversation with Matt Kirsch. Matt Kirsch, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure, Brian. We always like to get uh, a little bit of background first, so let's let's start with college. Uh, I believe you attended Brown University, right? Yeah, I, I appreciate your careful use of the word attended. I went uh, for two years. What were you but studying? I did not finish. Well, you know, uh, in two years you don't really have to make a decision, but I was mostly taking CS courses and music and architecture. Um, I thought I was going to be a music major, um, but that didn't really matter. Mm. So what what caused you to leave Brown? Well, um, it actually has everything to do with my experience in tech. I mean, I, um, I had helped my dad, who a, was a surgeon, uh, pick an uh, office management system for, for his medical practice when I was in high school. And... Uh, that's that's how he could justify uh, paying me whatever he paid me um, to uh, fund my college. So uh, I uh, sorry, getting these headphones to work a little better. So, anyways, um, when I was at Brown, uh, the Macintosh came out, which like completely realigned the stars and the universe for me. And I had this idea to do a medical uh, practice management system on the Mac. So. Uh, after my freshman year, I started this company uh, that became Clearview Software, and I recruited a bunch of Brown students uh, uh, to work with me. And uh, we all worked together. And then uh, at, for a year, I did college and uh, also uh, worked on this company in the basement of a dorm room uh, or a dorm building. Uh, but after a year, I went uh, on leave of absence. So I, I just... Uh, I just passed my 30th anniversary of uh, my leave of absence, so I'm very proud of that. But clearly, you even if you didn't get a CS degree, you, you had enough programming chops that uh, you, you could go do a startup in, in software. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a lot of the deep scientific theory of computation knowledge that, that a CS graduate would have. I also have no idea if that's useful in everyday practice, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't learn. I, we programmed everything in the, back in the day in C, and uh, they didn't teach C. They taught Pascal and assembly language, and I knew BASIC. But um, but uh, I learned C on my own as part of the business, and that was that worked great. And and the other, I think the other guys on the team were much more capable uh, coders than I was. So uh, Clearview's successful enough that it's eventually sold to Apple. Well, I guess specifically Claris, which kind of was Apple. Yeah. Um, and about what year would, was that 1989 maybe? Yeah, we sold them the publishing rights. The company pivoted from doing medical stuff to doing desktop publishing stuff. And uh, although, of course, the word pivot uh, wasn't applied to these things for another 20 years. but. Right. We, we, we moved to that space. We sold them the publishing rights in 87, and then they bought the company in 89, which uh, led to me moving out to the Bay Area. And you, uh, you stay, you're at Claire's for maybe a year or so? Yeah, not even. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, 
they, um, you know, of course they bought it, uh, the company to develop the product. And uh, they also had bought FileMaker um, not long after Smartform. And they were different but similar products. And, and Claris was um, thinking they wanted to go public as an independent company. So they were really manicuring their P&L. And so they decided they weren't going to develop Smartform any further, uh, which had the positive side effect for me and the other guys of letting us out of our employment agreements. So uh, this, the, the moment they made that announcement, I started uh, looking for something else to do. Well, the, the something else that you do is another startup called Slate Corporation. Um, but before we talk about what Slate does, uh, one of the reasons, as I said to you, I'm, I'm eager to talk to you is um, to lay the groundwork for what was the, the, the pen computing sort of bubble of the of the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So I'm, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, maybe outline um, when you start to hear about pen computing, why it was a, why it was a thing in the Valley uh, in the late 80s. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm literally feeling chills right now. There's only a few times I think in my life where I saw a product that just completely knocked me sideways. And I still remember... Um, so it would have been early 1990 when my uh, friend Mitch Stein, who I'm still good friends with, he uh, had gotten involved with these guys at Slate, and he came to my crappy little rental in Los Altos, and we sat in my backyard, and he pulled out a tablet computer um, that was, you know, a prototype that was very confidential at the time. It was about the size of an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, um, and it had no keyboard, of course, and it had a bitmap display, and it had a pen, um, much more like the current uh, Apple Pencil in the terms that it was, a, it was an active electronic pen. And uh, the whole, you know, organizing uh, user experience was around a notebook and was very pen-centric, and it was just a holy shit kind of moment. Um, you know, because you got to think about it at the time, people <laughs> we didn't even have laptops with LCDs uh, in any quantity, let alone something like this. Um, and even though it was only black and white, it was it was it really felt like, uh, you know, a Star Trek episode or a glimpse into the future. So um, the whispered belief in the valley at the time was this was going to be, um, you know, the NBT, the next big thing. And, um, and so, you know, the timing was great. Mitch was one of the early guys at Slate, and they didn't even have their Bay Area office yet because he ran it and hadn't opened it. And uh, he recruited me to come in as, as the first uh, other person in the office. And, and I, think it was, I think Slate was the first um, pen computing application company anywhere. So that's how early it was. Right, I was going to say, like, when you see that, that first tablet computer, what does he demo you? Like, what are, what are the applications or, or the use cases that he's showing you, you know, could be possible? Um, you know, I think at the high level, there was just uh, the basic organizing. Uh, you know, you could think of it as the OS shell, but in this case, it looked like uh, a, a notebook that had tabs and pages, and so... You know, when you wanted to create a new page, uh, you used a menu and it created a new page, and the page could be a word processing page or a drawing page. Um, I think those were probably the main apps that were just built in as kind of system apps. Um, and then, of course, there were no applications companies. So, so the larger question was, what the hell do you do with this thing? Um, and I'm not sure that was ever clear, even, even you know, during the next several years as pen computing came and went. I, I think part of the reason it went was uh, we didn't know what it was for. I don't think that's the only reason, but that was a big reason. But, ne you know, nevertheless, the experience of seeing something that acted that fluidly and that personally and that, you know, wasn't this big box with a keyboard. I mean, it was just, uh, it was amazing. 
Um, and and you say that um, it was the firm belief of Silicon Valley at the time that this was the next big thing. And just to give users or listeners context, I mean, there would be in in short order things famously like the Newton, um, and yeah. also a little more forgotten today, but what was a major major startup called Go Corporation. So. Tell us a little bit about about that that scene that, as it were, of, of the startups that are trying to chase this pen computing thing. Well, this device that Mitch is showing uh, showing me, I should have been more clear, is a device from Go Corporation. So it was their reference hardware running their operating system, which was called PenPoint. And so, um, you know, that's that's what I'm looking at. Go is really well-funded. Kleiner Perkins and several other big venture firms were behind them. Uh, And uh, there were some heavy hitters there. Uh, So that was, um, I think, really way ahead. Uh, Newton came a little later and had a a somewhat different uh, concept. Um, And, uh, you know, we were engaged with them in time as well. Um, and, you know, over time, there would be <coughs> other folks too, like GeoWorks. It wasn't exactly pen-based the way I recall it, but they had a kind of a lightweight computing platform. And then further down the pike will be General Magic, which we'll probably talk about. And they weren't really pen-based, but more mobile. Uh, and then, if, And then there was Microsoft doing what they always do, which is saying, uh, yeah, we're going to do that too. So they said they would do a version of Windows that had pen support, and then uh, free- freezing the market. Um, <laughs> let's 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 come back to your story just real real quickly. Um, so you then um, are only at Slate for again around a year, and then it, you decide uh, that you want to do a startup yourself in in this pen space. Yeah, I mean, I went to I went to Slate early. Um, my buddy Mitch, I think, left after around six months. Um, and I started having product ideas, uh, for pen devices. And, you know, it's the classic entrepreneur story. Like I could either, uh, share my stories at my ideas at slate, uh, try to convince management to support them and then get paid a couple shekels to do it. Or or I could just leave and do it myself. So, uh, you know, I'd already started and sold the company. It was pretty obvious what I was going to do. So uh, I got to my first anniversary um, and uh, vested uh, my first uh, load of stock, and I resigned. And the the company you start is what? Well, it was called Ink Development. It became eShop, um, but the idea was to you know do software for pen computers. Uh, Specifically, and I, what 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 sort of software? Well, we had a couple ideas. They were ideas I had come up with. Um, there was a drawing application, and uh, the guy who was going to create that was Pierre Omijar, who, of course, went on to found eBay. So I knew Pierre from Claris. Um, we used to play soccer together. Um, and, uh, and then we were going to do uh, a note-taking app and, a, and what was called at the time a PIM, a personal information manager, which is, you know, uh, contacts and calendar. Um, and so, uh, I had three initial partners, um, in, you know, in addition to Pierre Omijar, there was, uh, Arnold Blinn and Greg Stein. And then, uh, a guy named Will Poole who started helping with the, uh, the, the, uh, kind of business planning early and then joined, uh, as a founder after about nine months or a year. So, uh, you know, we were, we were early, uh, not as early as some, but I knew what everybody was doing in the pen space because I was in the thick of it. Literally, Slate was in the same building as Go, um, you know, a couple floors away from them. So it was, you know, a very cozy little industry. Uh, so I felt, uh, you know, confident that we had some ideas that were differentiated in the market. And and are you only developing for uh, Go, or are you uh, developing for for whoever becomes a player? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's funny, uh, Brian. As I was uh, clawing through some of my old files before this, it was kind of funny to see the kind of rolling strategy uh, reflected in the different uh, documents I, I found. And 
at first, the only thing worth developing on was uh, PenPoint with Go. Uh, but then Microsoft really put together an interesting system, so we started working with them. Um, we talked to the Newton guys. Uh, I, I don't think there was really anything there. They were building a lot of stuff in, um, so less of an opportunity for independent guys. Uh, and then uh, over time, got uh, uh, connected with General Magic and, and started working with them. Tell me, tell so, me a little bit about General Magic. Well, General Magic, you know, you know when you and I were chatting earlier this week, it, it, it's for somebody involved at the time, it's strange how completely um, unknown they are today, although it makes e sense. Even I mean, to me. I, I knew the name, but I didn't know the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so imagine a consortium of companies um, – we're talking about Apple, AT&T, Sony, Philips, and Matsushita. So Matsushita, which is Panasonic. They all invested in this company, General Magic. And, and the idea was they were going to go create um, the uh, you know, new consumer communications platform uh, for the new century. Um, so it's a small device uh, about the size of a 4x6 card with a touch uh, screen. Uh, you know, this is a point in time when even Wi-Fi isn't uh, that common, and there's no cellular data. So this was gonna, you were gonna uh, plug a, you know, RJ11 phone jack into this thing a couple times a day to connect to the, uh, uh, not the internet, but to their private messaging and and communications infrastructure. Andy Hertzfeld, who was one of the prime movers behind the Mac, was one of the key guys at General Magic, so it had that kind of friendly look and feel. Um, and so it's kind of, if you, you know, if you want to tell kind of the story, it's really a story of, of kind of top-down technology versus bottoms-up. And bottoms-up, of course, is uh, the web, and um, it kicked the ass of the centrally planned uh, kind of corporate designed solution and general magic didn't get anywhere. Yeah. See, that's, I feel like that that's the thing that might kind of boggle the mind of, of someone uh, that doesn't remember those days is that, so you have all these, you know, smart people, all these big money corporations coming into trying to develop something when it almost would feel like with the, with, you know, the benefit of, of, of history that there was no there there yet. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if you're creating all this hardware, but like the actual use case kind of hadn't been even developed before the web came around. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the use case that was imagined was similar to the web. It just wasn't an open platform. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was about email mm -hmm. and it was about um, all kinds of online services, you know, shopping, travel, etc. You know, just you have to realize that uh, and you do, but some listeners won't, is that, you know, AT&T as a monopoly was only broken up, I don't know. 1984. Uh, 84. So, you know, it's impossible to imagine today that kind of centrally planned uh, infrastructure. But, you know, AT&T didn't have to figure out how they get um, people to adopt touchstone phones because they just told them you have to adopt touchstone phones. Uh, and likewise, their mindset here, though, though they understood, I mean, they, they weren't, um, uh, kind of, uh, lost in the, uh, past, but they, you know, they understood they were going to have to convince people, but nevertheless, they were used to leading, uh, not just the market, but society. So that, you know, the idea was we're going to deliver this fantastic device and services and people are going to drive down to uh, the store and buy one of these and sign up for service with us. And it's going to be wonderful. And it, you know, it's impossible to say whether it would have worked absent the web, but when the web happened and, and more broadly, the internet, um, you know, this vast open TCP IP pipe, it just blew away mm -hmm. this idea of a controlled, uh, uh, you know, approach. I mean, in one, in one world, 
If you wanted a website, you started one today. In the other world, it was call up AT&T and negotiate a deal that allowed uh, you to put something on their service. Right. C- come on. Which one's going to win? <laughs> right. Well, actually, uh, uh, what what devices actually ever reached market? Like, was there any sort of uh, consumer uptake to, to pen computing? I mean, I remember I, – I still see Newtons around occasionally, but, like, um, did it get any traction in the market at all before the web hit? Yeah, it got a little. Uh, so, you know, you have to kind of look at the different platforms. So Go licensed their operating system to a couple players. Um, one, uh, you know, NCR produced some. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if NEC produced any, the Japanese manufacturer. But the biggest player in the Go space was uh, another startup that, people don't know about anymore, which was called EO. And EO was basically the pinpoint device company that was funded by VCs and also by AT&T um, to really confuse AT&T's role in all this. So AT&T was big into EO. So th- you you could have bought uh, EO 440, which was a little one, or an 880, which was a bigger one. They were a little pricey. Uh, what was the use case? Uh, you know, as you kind of suggested, it was a little unclear, you know. We didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have uh, wide open internet messaging. You know, the idea of sending an email to a, a person at another company was not really, you know, uh, in the you know consciousness of the technosphere. We didn't do that. It was all internal stuff. So you could do email inside your company, but that's about it. You know, you could take notes and stuff like that, but. Um, uh, they didn't get a ton of traction with those things. And uh, uh, separately, Windows got a lot more traction, not surprisingly, and compact shipped devices. Um, and we actually were bundled with Compact's device, uh, which was kind of our big win. And we were also bundled with NEC's device. And a number of other um, PC OEM shipped pen computing devices back then, you know, basically running pen windows. And 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 one 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 detail here um, is it all pen based handwriting recognition is as the the interface or is there any touch interface or or even you know the the tiny keyboards that you know we would be more familiar with? You know, a lot of the pen windows devices they were they were kind of two form factors. One is a tablet that looked kind of like of a uh, you know a, like an iPad with a thyroid condition, um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, big fat things. Um, but way better than a laptop in size. And then the other ones were these kind of convertibles that are, you know, very much like the uh, Windows uh, convertible tablets of today, you know, with a keyboard that you could hide or pull out. Um, so there were some pen Windows machines that I think were very capable um, and had their advantages uh, over, uh, over a traditional laptop. But there just wasn't enough innovation in the hardware or in uh, the software space uh, to get a lot of traction in it. So, uh, you know, I, they sold, you know, Compaq sold a bunch of them. Um, uh, but, you know, it wasn't too much longer that the Internet started happening. Right. And it was pretty clear where the innovation was going to focus. Um, well, let's let's tell that story via your story then. So, um Again, using the word that maybe wasn't common at the time, explain how you then you, you pivot to, to, to what eShop becomes. Well, you know, so the story there is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, I, I've told this hundreds of times, this, this phrase uh, since then. But, you know, the good news is I think we were probably the leading applications uh, company for pen computing. And the bad news was pen computing died. It just didn't go anywhere. And um, so we, we, we did pretty well on PenPoint, but PenPoint didn't do well. We did really well on Pen Windows, but, you know, it did okay, but it didn't take off. Um, and in the mix here, we got in touch with the General Magic guys, and they called us one day and said, uh, we have a developer's kit. Would you guys like it? And, you know, of course, why wouldn't we like it? Um, it wasn't until later that I realized that um, uh, Jimmy Friedlander, I think was uh, the guy's name, who was calling me, 
Jimmy was precise in his language. He had one developer's kit. That's how many they had. Uh, <laughs> and we were the first ones to get a developer's kit. So that meant we had like totally greenfield. We could do anything we wanted on general magic. And, uh, and, uh, the, you know, the trick was what would people want other than what was built in. And as, as you kind of ran down the business case, there was just this huge problem, massive, huge problem, which was you could write anything you wanted. There was no way to get the software onto the device. It didn't have a floppy drive. Uh, there was no clear way to tether it and get stuff onto it from another device. Um, it had a, a PC card slot, uh, but the cost for a, a P- to manufacture a PC card, you know, per unit cost was in the neighborhood of thirty or forty dollars. So obviously, you could not possibly build a business on something that costs you thirty bucks just for your cost of goods. So. We really struggled with this. It was kind of this very frustrating situation. What you know, we we could develop anything we wanted, but there was no way to get it onto the device. And so uh, we came up with this idea, which was, hey, that's the opportunity. Let's build an online software store that'll let people who have these devices um, go and uh, and uh, buy software uh, and. So I'm actually looking at uh, uh, my uh, my slide deck from August of '92, where I walked through this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surprised how early it was, but we had this concept. You know, we were co- the company was called Inc. and we called the concept Inc. and Roebuck, and um, and the idea was, oh, we'll we'll build the platform to sell software. But you know what? I actually this. I hope I'm not insulting the yeah. listeners here, but I think we should explain. That's referring to Sears Roebuck. <laughs> yes, I thought about that. Yes, Sears and Roebuck, that's the reference. And so we were Inc. and Roebuck. And, um, and so uh, the platform, you know, the idea was like we'll sell software. And, of course, you know, from a platform perspective, you're going to fill a database up with information. It doesn't really matter if it's information about software or tennis shoes or books or anything else. You might as well just let anybody sell anything. So... So we had proposed this uh, to General Magic, uh, and they were, you know, very happy because instead of just being a single solution, we'd be really a whole class of solutions. And uh, AT&T, who was building all the messaging infrastructure, was really happy because they weren't going to have anything but plain old consumer messaging. So they um, signed a big contract with us, and we were uh, building all the infrastructure, not just to sell software, but, you know, we had Tower Records, which at the time was the biggest music retailer, uh, and 800 Flowers, and a big consumer electronics firm. So literally just a a full-service electronic commerce platform. Yeah, and and so, you know, people ask me, how did we get into e-commerce? And it's it's just the craziest story, right? Like, why would you ever think it would happen this way? But we, we started building it for General Magic. And uh, then, lo and behold, online really took off. Uh, and, and I don't mean the web, as you know. I mean, it started with CompuServe more than anything mm-hmm. else and Prodigy. And mm-hmm. then AOL was kind of the vastly friendlier but smaller upstart. And this stuff just was going off like a rocket. And we're sitting there and saying, okay, well, our platform, you know, our whole backend would work with that stuff. The backend doesn't care. So what if we wrote a client that would work just for regular old Windows? Um, and so we started, you know, we, we shipped the General Magic version, but it was almost irrelevant by the time it shipped. Um, and then we shipped a version with a Windows client. We couldn't. We couldn't get our stuff into one of the proprietary online services. Because they it were had, doing, doing them all themselves already. It, exactly. I mean, it's the same kind of um, proprietary versus open dynamic uh, I mentioned earlier with general magic versus the web. I mean, you know, we, we were real eager to put our shopping client into AOL, but that was entirely at their uh, control and... They had their own stuff and didn't want to do anything else. So we just shipped our own Windows client. Like you literally 
got a floppy disk and installed it on your computer and it dialed out on the modem and uh, went to our back end. Um, and that got some traction. That was neat. Uh, but that was going to be really hard to scale. And, uh, and then the team, you know, recognized we got to do an HTML version of this. And uh, actually, Pierre Omijar was quite a, a forceful advocate for this. And he was frustrated with me that we weren't uh, jettisoning the older approaches quickly enough. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we did a, we were working on the HTML version of the, uh, system when, uh, both Netscape and, and Microsoft got interested in acquiring us. Um, and you, you eventually go with, with Microsoft. How come, how come them instead of Netscape? Um, you know, there were a lot of internal deal issues and, boring, uh, stuff like that. And, and certainly there was a financial issue. Um, and that was part of it. I, I think we also felt like, um, you know, Netscape, I forgot at the time, but like Netscape had a couple thousand employees and they had hired them all in the last, you know, the prior 12 months. And here you had Microsoft with 25,000 employees or something, but they had spent 25 years hiring them. And it was just a, Microsoft was just a much more, um, you know, mature organization. And it was just unavoidable. You know, they, they had systems and ideas and culture and practices. And uh, Netscape was just, it was just crazy. I mean, if you, back then, if you walked into the, just the lobby uh, of, uh, of Netscape, you just like, you just felt the energy of the place. It was just bristling. There was so much happening. Everybody wanted to do business with them. They weren't even sure why. It was just their Netscape. Of course, I need to go do business with Netscape. So we just felt like we, we it was you know the the best place for us to kind of roll out the this uh, product was with uh, kind of more uh, you know uh, older, more mature business. Yeah, and, and Netscape actually didn't have much luck with with its acquisitions. Uh, a lot of them got sort of disappeared. But um, it, so when eShop goes to Microsoft, it, it it sort of becomes what we would know as as the Microsoft Commerce Server, right? Yeah, and I actually had absolutely nothing to do with it. I mean, basically, as soon as we sold it, um, my uh, as I've often told the story, uh, it was a Thursday in 1996. Uh, we closed the deal on Thursday. I got married on Saturday. I went on my honeymoon on Monday. I came back two weeks later and my company was gone. Like the whole team was, they weren't just like visiting Seattle. Like they had bought houses and they had offices and they were working at Microsoft and Microsoft, I have to say, just did an amazing job, um, from what I could see at a distance, at, at saying, okay, these guys are our e-commerce experts. Our job is to support them. Go. Uh, so they really let the team just rock it. And uh, I don't know, I think it took about six or nine months for them to ship the first version of the Microsoft Commerce Server. Uh, just real briefly here, uh, this is, again, something that listeners of the show know I bang on about a lot. Um, but um, The fact that e-commerce in general, commerce on the web, commerce digitally, uh, didn't just take off overnight. Like It was a slog, and it was sort of a process of acclimatizing people to, to this kind of commerce. Um, so I'm wondering if, if you have any... Any recollections of that, or thoughts on that, uh, it, just the, the process of, of people getting comfortable with, with doing e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, I, I often um, try to help people get their heads around how risky and dangerous it seemed back then, just because I don't, I don't think that's gone away and I don't think we can take it for granted. I mean, the idea of uh, I'm going to type my credit card number into a computer and it's going to go someplace and I have to trust them not to misuse it and I have to trust them to send me the stuff and I have to trust them to back up the purchase and I have no idea who or what those uh, people are 
Um, you haven't seen the product was... with, with your own eyes? It's just a picture on a page somewhere? Yeah, and I mean, as you know, I mean, these things move in hand in hand. Digital cameras basically didn't exist in any usable form until 2000. Right, I mean, when yeah. my, my first kid was born, I bought a one megapixel right. digital camera for $1,000. It's pretty amazing. And so, you know, even the idea of, uh, you know, I'm going to see a picture for them to show you a picture of the product, they had to shoot film, develop the print, and then scan it in. So it was just these sites didn't look very good. The product photography was lousy. The bandwidth was slow. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've done this, but I would really encourage anybody to do this. Go back into the um, you know Internet Archive uh, website and poke around the websites in 1995 and 1996, they look like crap. I mean, it's amazing uh, that any of us uh, would look at these sites and grab our friends and coworkers and say, look how cool this is, because it really looks terrible. But, you know, compared to what was possible before it, it was, it was amazing. So, you know, the sites were crude, and there was a lot of sensitivity about credit cards, um, I know I mentioned to you when we chatted, we, we came up with, I think it was my uh, partner, Will Poole, came up with this uh, ink shopping guarantee that we basically said, uh, if, if you have any credit card losses, we'll refund your money. And the thing that was funny about it was the credit card companies limit your losses anyways. There really is no exposure. I think your total exposure is like $50 mm-hmm. um, you know, today and forever. But people didn't know. They were really worried. Like, if their credit card's out in the wild, who knows? So we made this big boast that really meant, I mean, it was true, but it it didn't take much from us because there was no exposure. So uh, it was scary days, and and there weren't a lot of people to shop from. Um, I mean, I was uh, driving my 16-year-old daughter to school. Uh, and her friend said, oh, I like your jacket. And my daughter said, oh, it's an Amazon jacket. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, a North Face uh, rain shell. Mm-hmm. And, and I laughed, and she asked why. And I said, well, it's just funny that you said it was from Amazon. Um, and, she, and she said, well, it is. It's from Amazon. I said, yeah, I know. But when Amazon started, all they sold was books. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, you probably remember that when they started selling CDs, right, yep. I thought – who do they think they are that they think they can sell books and CDs? And, you know, here I am today and I buy, I buy uh, my favorite crackers and gluten-free flour from them. I mean, I buy everything from them. Um, but at the time it was just books. So it was, uh, it was very early. Um, and, you know, at the time the entire catalog business was uh, 60 uh, billion dollars. I think if you if you kind of scrubbed away all the bullshit, uh, the consumer catalog business is about uh, uh, sixty billion dollars. And mm-hmm. and now um, I'm looking as we talk. Uh, uh, you know, Google's. I mean, not Google. Amazon's a hundred and seven billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just Amazon mm-hmm. is 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 bigger than the entire catalog business back then. So, you know, retail's really been reimagined since then. Well, let's come back to your story then, um, because so you get acquired by Microsoft in 96. So that's that's right when the, the browser wars are starting. Microsoft has pivoted. Again, there's that word uh, yeah. to, to get, um, you know, super serious about the Internet, everything Internet. So um, when you join Microsoft, uh, what, what do you start working on? So, uh, you know... <laughs> The summer of 96 was really great. I just sold my company to Microsoft. I'm newly married. I'm on Microsoft's payroll, and I have, I mean, literally no responsibilities. They don't give a shit. I'm the guy who used to run eShop. Uh, they don't need me. I'm not, uh, you know, I haven't coded for uh, a long time at that point. And, um, and so I'm hanging out with my uh, lovely new wife, enjoying San Francisco, and eventually I got pretty anxious like if I didn't take control of the situation, something bad was going to happen. So I started flying up to Seattle and poking around, and I got really lucky. I met this guy, John Nielsen, who is pretty new 
he'd been at the company a long time, but he was pretty new VP in the consumer division, and he was responsible for uh, Expedia and what became Carpoint and mapping stuff. And then he also, I think the biggest thing he was running was Sidewalk. And so Mm -hmm. he uh, asked me to come in and be head of strategy, which was just great because I really liked John. Uh, I knew more about the internet. He knew everything about Microsoft. And um, it was a great perch for me to kind of get, get into Microsoft and learn about stuff. So, you know, that was all, um, in, you know, in, in the time when Microsoft had the separate consumer division mm-hmm. that included uh, CD-ROM software and, and Microsoft Money and the MSN dial-up service and, uh, and a small but growing number of websites. Which uh, Sidewalk was, was one of. So tell us, tell us what Sidewalk was attempting to do. Uh, I like the use of the word attempting. <laughs> I think it's very critical. So, you know, Sidewalk is another one of those businesses that I think is a little hard to imagine um, today. But uh, so Sidewalk ha- was an idea that a number of people had come up with, um, I think, roughly in 94, late 94 or 95. And the basic idea was uh, there should be some analog on the web to what local newspapers do uh, not in terms of hard news but uh, in terms of uh, arts and entertainment coverage cultural coverage um, more the commercial things like what happens in the classifieds um, you know uh, what happens a lot in the advertising between display ads and and uh, other advertising so there was just a general idea of we should do something local on the internet. So uh, the decision was made to focus exclusively at launch on arts and entertainment. And so I, a good analog is like comparing it to a city paper. Um, you know, like uh, here we have SF Weekly or Pacific Sun or the Phoenix in Boston or something like that. And, and so um, by the time I was there uh, at Microsoft, we had people in 10 U.S. cities, about, I don't know, I think it was about 30 or 40 people in each city. Um, And then we had people in a couple international cities, and they were all feverishly getting ready to launch a city-specific website. They they hadn't launched anything. Um, So, you know, there were a lot of... uh, good things and bad things about it. I mean, all the people were incredibly talented. Um, I think it's pretty clear now, uh, 20 years later, when you look at Yelp, um, which pretty much fills the space, um, uh, not completely. They don't do so much uh, kind of arts coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the, the model, the heavy editorial model that Sidewalk had has has not been shown to have traction. I mean, we had absolutely world-class um, editors, writers, producers, designers. I mean, these were really talented people um, and, and correspondingly uh, expensive people. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's unfortunately the case that it's just, it's hard to make enough money doing that on the web to justify spending that kind of money. I mean, even uh, of course, today, just just uh, traditional newspaper businesses that were very large and very profitable and have been around for a century or more, those things are barely alive. So you know, right. doing you, a subset of that is really tough. It's interesting to me because on the one hand, you're right. Like what you described Sidewalk was trying to do, you, you think to yourself, okay, that became Yelp, that became Craigslist or something. But then at the same time um, – it, it it's an idea that still kind of hasn't worked like this hyper local like you know AOL had that experiment the name of which uh escapes me but doing the the hyper local stuff still hasn't really kind of taken off yeah i mean the key thing is the you know the, the again a, a, you know acronym that didn't exist at the time um UGC user generated content i mean if you would have told my editorial team um 
instead of writing restaurant reviews, we're going to just let the public write them and then vote them up or down. I I mean, half the staff would have, um, you know, jumped off a bridge and the other half would have uh, staged an armed revolt. I mean, it's just, that's certainly not what they do. And it's certainly, I I mean, uh, you could take a poll amongst your uh, audience, but like me and my wife are constantly saying how, you know, we look at Yelp reviews and the conclusion is always the same. They're useless because, because you got somebody who says, this is the best restaurant I ever ate in. And somebody else who says, I was offended by how absolutely dismal the food service was. Uh, so other than the fact that it got a thousand reviews and they average out to four out of five stars, he's just really nothing useful about it. Um, you know, we had great restaurant writers. Um, but you have to pay that person. And to pay that person, you need to have an, a quantity of advertising. That's pretty hard to get. Um, and so uh, it's, it's just, it's hard. I mean, the model may work someday, but, you know, the big newspapers can barely pay the bills uh, at this point. So I, I um, you know, I started at Microsoft just doing strategy, but after several months, John asked me to, uh, run a set of smaller properties. And then a little bit later, he put me in charge of sidewalk and, um, and, you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing where, you know, the, the people were great. The concept was appealing, but this, this is a, you know, this is the thing that really gets me, um, worked up and always has is, you know, people look at an idea like sidewalk and they'll say, um, and I'm not just talking about sidewalk, but they'll say, oh, it was a great idea, but it, but it didn't work. And to me, I, I, the way I look at it is like, no, if, if it didn't work, it's definitely not a great idea. It was an interesting idea. It was a compelling idea. It was an exciting idea. But great ideas are ideas that make money. That's, that's the idea in business. And sidewalk, there was no way. I mean, I, I, won't, I won't say here how much we were spending, but it was incredible how much money we were spending on sidewalk. And there was no way we were ever going to make our money back on it. Um, and certainly nobody today is making money on what we were doing. Um, and so, you know, what we, what we did is we, two things, we added yellow pages and buying guides. So we turned it into, uh, a much more broad commerce, um, play, um, that, that still had local flavor, um, because of the yellow pages, um, and, and that also had the side benefit of being a national business. Like instead of just being in 10 cities, we were everywhere cause we had national directories. So that was pretty easy. So that was stage one. And then the second thing we did, uh, I think I'm getting this chronology right is we sold the local arts and entertainment part of the business to, uh, uh, still around city search, which is, uh, part of, uh, uh, IAC, mm-hmm. um, which was part at the time had Ticketmaster in there. I don't know if they're still part of it, but um, we we sold that part of the business because we just couldn't see any way we were ever going to uh, really make money at it. And they they still really believed they were doing the same thing, and they thought having teams in every city was really a, a, a good use of resources. And so uh, they. Um, they took that over from us. So when it was all done, uh, in my involvement at Sidewalk, Sidewalk was much more, it still had arts and entertainment coverage, but it was coming from city search. So it wasn't a cost to us. And, and then we had, uh, directories and buying guides. I, you, you were also involved in, in other Microsoft things like home advisor and music central. And, uh, I, I, I don't mean to skip over them, especially if there's uh, interesting stories there. Um, but, uh, at some point you, you take over, uh, msn.com, the, the, the Microsoft portal, or, or is it even a portal when, when, when you start to work on, on MSN? Um, it's barely a portal. Uh, uh, you know, so MSN's this interesting, um, situation. So, you know, MSN started life, the thing called MSN, the first thing called MSN was a proprietary online service like AOL, uh, that launched, I think around Windows 95 time, uh, didn't do really well. Um, 
then it uh, relaunches as you know. It, there's MSN dial-up service, uh, and there's uh, a uh, MSN homepage, which is the default homepage when you get Internet Explorer, which at the time uh, was increasingly um, the most popular uh, web browser. It's not today, but but back then it was by far the most popular. Um, so MSN got quite a bit of traffic just because uh, people ran uh, Internet Explorer. Um, it was the first page that they opened. They just, yeah, they didn't do, and they never changed their default homepage, so it just kept going there. Um, so it was a little bit of a dicey game because we weren't really earning that traffic. We weren't doing anything wonderful for people. You know, it wasn't like at the time people wanted Yahoo. They had to pick Yahoo. Um, but uh, they didn't have to um, – they didn't pick MSN. They just got MSN. But we put some stuff up on there. And I don't remember the exact sequence uh, of how the page was developed. But uh, in – I think it was uh, early 99 that I – uh, gained responsibility for MSN, and we—I think it was the first time we really did a complete, you know, top to bottom design for MSN and the whole MSN.com site and how does it all work, and and uh, and we launched it very much with the intention of competing. Uh, even more effectively in this whole portal space that you mentioned, which people don't talk about anymore. But, you know, there was Yahoo uh, and there was uh, Excite. AltaVista. Uh, Alta well, and actually uh, Netscape.com also because similar similar story is uh, that homepage they discovered had a lot of traffic, so they decided to portalize it. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I was thinking about, Brian, I don't know how much you've talked about it on the podcast, but it's really interesting. I was thinking about this before we started talking, which is the, one of the key developments that made all of this stuff popular, possible really was the change in how tech companies could go public. I mean, um, in the early 90s, uh, well, let's put it this way. When Claris wanted to go public, the, the conventional wisdom is I think you had to have $100 million in sales mm-hmm. and like three or four consecutive profitable quarters. And there were a couple uh, – in, in biotech, they had long done what they called concept IPOs, where somebody was believed to have a blockbuster drug. It wasn't necessarily even on the market, but they would go public and people would invest on the promise. Um, that never happened in tech until the early 90s. I think the first one might have been 3DO, which was a game platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably know about, yeah, uh, yeah. Trip Hawkins ran it, uh, general magic did a concept IPO. Um, and then the big one was Netscape. Uh, and, and, you know, nobody calls, they stopped calling them concept IPOs cause that makes it sound like, uh, it's magical thinking because it was, but not, not good for sales. So they don't call them that. But, uh, with Netscape, it created this, uh, whole new liquidity option of going public and there were, uh, I remember when we sold the company eShop to Microsoft, there were people uh, who say, well, you could go public. And I was like, we're, 50, we're a 50-person company. That's like the craziest thing I've ever heard. You know, we have, we have a couple million in sales every year. There's some great clients, great partners. It's a great thing, but go public. Come on, you can't go public. A year later, there would have been nothing interesting about a 50-person company going public. They were doing it regularly. Little companies were doing concept IPOs all the time. And um, that uh, created really kind of this funny money climate because if you could go public, either promise of or you did it, then you could go to Netscape's portal or MSN's uh, portal group and you could say, I'll pay you $5 million dollars. Uh, to be on your homepage. Uh, and there's no way they were never going to make that $5 million back, but it didn't matter because they were going to get to go public, which was going to allow them to raise $300 million uh, and make all their investors a lot of money. So it created this whole economy that, that never had existed before, and, and, and all these portals could extract money out of that economy. Um, and so... 
you know, when I was running MSN, we, we definitely were building the portal uh, to be able to, you know, deliver a great experience to users and also to participate in this kind of new uh, economy. Um, and uh, there was a team of people working on an, uh, what I think really would, was the first, uh, you know, web search engine that Microsoft built instead of just, uh, uh, you know, used from someone else. Uh, a guy named Bill Bliss was building a new search engine. Um, and, uh, you know, we built new ad systems. We were serving 250 million ads a day. So we needed our own technology to do that. So we, we went off and built that. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was an exciting time. I think in the fullness of time, it's become clear. Well, I don't know that the portal idea is not a good one, but it's clearly not the dominant, uh, kind of mode of use of the internet anymore. It's, it's been become, uh, less integrated. I want to, I'm shooting in the dark here, but I, I want to go a little further in what you're doing in search in 1999. Cause obviously, you know, you think a couple years later, Google takes off and, um, search becomes this an amazing business, but, um, other people from like Yahoo and, and Excite have pointed out that at the time, search itself was considered not very important and not very monetizable. Um, and, and almost because the, the, the focus was keeping people, keeping the eyeballs on your pages. So you mentioned that, that uh, Microsoft is developing its first uh, search engine you know, internally. Um, what, was there any sort of thinking that, that, that search could be a market in and of itself? Oh, yeah, I think that was very clear. And I remember, you know... Because uh, GoTo was around by 99, I think. Oh, yeah, GoTo was around. And and this idea of kind of the AdWords marketplace, um, of having, you know, a bid market uh, for exposure, that was, you know, understood to be a very compelling uh, pricing model. The... The ad, so advertising at the time, uh, as you know, I mean, internet advertising was much more about display ads, you know, banners and and uh, other uh, other form factors, and um, you know, we were doing big contracts, and um, you know, Google, of course, in terms of the quality of the results, people knew they were uh, the the gold standard, um, and then. You know, I, I, I don't I'm no expert in the history of search, uh, but the way I think of it is uh, the the uh, rise of the kind of bidding AdWords business, coupled with the fact that uh, people's uh, web uh, diet became vastly more varied, uh, you know, because the reason the portals were interesting was people would kind of sit down at their computer and say, I want to get something done on the internet. I just don't know how. I don't know where all this shit is. How am I going to find this stuff? And if you could go to Yahoo and they just had it all, that was awesome. Um, and a lot of it was their own. And what wasn't their own would be some partners. And that was great. People didn't have good Google search skills. But, you know, my kids uh, start learning how to use Google search. You know, school teaches them that, you know, right along when uh, they learn about Christopher Columbus and uh, you know, uh, how plants grow. I mean, it's a very basic thing. So I think people no longer are sitting there saying, I don't know how to do it. They want to go search the whole web. And Google, uh, Google was the best tool and the most monetized tool. And, um, and they met that appetite at the time. So, you know, to my mind, search was important. I remember being in briefings with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and, and we'd be, uh, telling the story and, and, Bill Bliss was uh, a lot smarter about this stuff than me um, uh, and had really uh, driven our first entrant. But our first entrant was relatively modest in terms of the scale of the team. You know, it was, it was a 80 or 100 people, uh, which at Microsoft's not a big team. Um, and we had a partner. I think we were working with LookSmart and... and um, and, you know, I, I think we felt like we were going to have something interesting. But we were, we were definitely not saying, oh, let's replicate Google and try to do it a little bit better, which is an incredibly large venture. 
there was no notion of that. And I think it was after I left that it became clear that if we didn't do that, we kind of wouldn't have anything. And they went off and created Bing. Uh, that was after my time. Right. You, you leave uh, Microsoft in 2000, I, I guess? Yeah, early 2000. It's amazing how many people uh, leave at just the right time. Right when the, right when the bubble hits, it seems to be everyone had perfect timing. <laughs> um, so um, in the interest of time, so I, I don't take up all your day, um, uh, dealer's choice. Uh, tell us what you've been up to um, the last 15 years or so, <laughs> or, um, or tell us what you're interested in today and what you're, what you're doing today. Well, uh, you know, as uh, as I've said many times since, I, I uh, three things happened at the same time. One is uh, stock the the Microsoft stock price was high. Uh, two was I was getting pretty frustrated at Microsoft, and three was my wife got pregnant. So I left Microsoft in two thousand and and uh, got to hang out with my wife and uh, new daughter and. Uh, and moved to the Bay Area um, from Seattle. And I did a lot of different things uh, over the next few years. Um, ran a nonprofit, did some other stuff. I mean, my, it's, it's interesting. I, I know you, you, you kind of keep yourself involved in the Internet stuff through this podcast, mm -hmm. um, which is a great way to stay plugged in. I mean, for me... Um, it's been a lot of years, and I, I'm working again in tech. I'm working in online uh, corporate learning. Uh, but, you know, there was never a time when I stopped getting up every morning and reading, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and a bunch of tech blogs and, uh, uh, like, totally nerding out on this stuff. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a, it was a passion before it was a business, and it's a passion now, and I... Uh, I'm just totally uh, uh, fixated on Apple and what they've been doing, and it took me it took me around seven years to titrate off Windows, um, but uh, I'm totally off Windows. And uh, titrating is a good word for it, yeah. Yeah, well, we actually shut down our last Windows machine just a few weeks ago because <laughs> my wife uh, my wife uh, was running Quicken for Windows on it. Uh, but she finally moved to Quicken for uh, Mac. But uh, um, the uh, you know I I just love what Apple's been doing and and uh, and so uh, you know for me it's always been about finding what's the interesting opportunity, what's not being done well, and what I what I found um, as I got older and got involved in a lot of stuff was that uh, the the most important things to learn in life are things that school doesn't teach you, you know, practical things like managing your time or running a meeting or, uh, managing people and, and then, you know, softer skills like emotional intelligence or how to communicate. And so I've been poking around in that area for several years and did some work with a really talented group of people on, uh, exploring that through in-person learning. And now I'm working on, how to bring that to people online. So you could go online and basically take a video workshop where, you know, and I don't find, I don't find conventional online learning very engaging. I don't, mm. I don't know how your audience feels, but like watching a video of somebody talk is even less interesting than watching a lecture. And I never liked the lecture anyways. Mm -hmm. So what I've been working on is a, you know, a, an approach where, you do a workshop and you see all the other participants. You're up on video and you're talking and you can do breakout groups and brainstorming and whiteboarding and use virtual post-it notes and really get a rich experience that's really alive. Uh, but you can do it from home or anywhere um, and you know organize that around some key ideas or key topics uh, like, uh, like time management or goal setting or decision making. So uh, it's... You know, what I find for myself is it was never the Internet per se that interested me. It was all about the end user benefit. Like, wouldn't it be, you know, great if you could, um, in the mobile space, wouldn't it be great if you could capture all your ideas and carry all your contacts with you and 
have all your notes. And of course, we all do that now with our phones. And um, and then with shopping, it was, wouldn't it be neat if you could, you know, uh, have the chance to uh, buy kind of anything from anyone anywhere? Um, you know, how cool would that be? Um, and, uh, you know, with Sidewalk, it was, you know, really fun to help people plan their leisure time. And, and so, you know, now with the education stuff, it's, it's just kind of the next stage for me. Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely amazing. I mean, people, every once in a while, somebody uh, will kind of hear a distant echo of, of what I used to do and approach me and say, hey, we're looking to get someone involved who really understands, you know, Internet advertising or Internet commerce. And I, I just laugh because, uh, as, as you well know, Internet advertising today has nothing to do with what it was right. when I was at MSN. I mean, that was literally the Stone Ages. The, the, the optimization engines they have today, the targeting, it's, it's in a, it, 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 I, don't, I don't even begin to understand it. And uh, you know, I understand commerce from a consumer perspective, but this, the, the sophistication that goes on in the background is so high. And I remember... Soon after uh, we sold out to Microsoft, I got wind of somebody teaching an e-commerce course at a business school, and I just cracked up. I was like, "This is a this has been happening for two years. Like, how do you have a course on it? How can you be an expert on it? How are you teaching it? Like, I know more than pretty much anyone, and I don't know how to teach it. It's just too new. But you know, of course, business schools wanted to teach it anyways. Um, but now. I mean, there are people who've built really deep careers on this stuff. It's it's quite amazing how much it's changed, uh, and and I'm sure it'll keep changing. So uh, it's just fun for me to keep poking at it. Well, Matt Kirsch, that's why it's so fun to to talk to people like you because sort of using people's careers, we can see how all this stuff has evolved and, you know, even going all the way back to pen computing with you. So uh, I thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and uh, remembering all that for us. My pleasure, Brian. It's been fun. 